Welcome to episode 354 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a wonderful conversation with American journalist and biographer Patricia Bosworth. She shares with us a bit about her journey and her background. We talk about her father's work as a lawyer for the Hollywood Ten, and we get into a bit about white supremacy and fighting racism. We talk about Killer Mike and gun control. Her biographies, she's written wonderful biographies about Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Jane Fonda, Paul Robeson. We discuss a conversation she had with Ilya Kazan about storytelling. It's really a fascinating, very poignant discussion with Patricia Bosworth on today's program. We have an EW essay titled Wondrous and an original radio play titled Orientation, written by our associate producer, Michael Pavise, the doctor, and performed by Marnie Azzarelli, and a poem called Repose. All of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued, infused, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it, episode 354 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Shut 
down the main line who achieved big things in his lifetime has passed that actress with the wicked wit and a proclivity to speak truth to power just got arrested again because of climate change in our natural environment and not enough change in our political one it all matters right what you've done what you are doing right As long as that sun shines on these crisp winter days, I can navigate. The blue shell of sky, like a robin's egg, is so wondrous. All of the human beings that are comforted as they look up and check to see that it is indeed there, and thus so too are they indeed here. 
we are here now, how many before us, how many now, how many after us have to hitch on that plow and pull, push, get behind that rock uphill, up if just a little bit more, then it inevitably rolls back. The enlightenment from family and friends and colleagues as well. Love, heartache, joy, and a sense of being still here, but not still. Moving, breathing, crying, seething, laughing, holding on to someone you treasure, letting go of empty pleasure, and find a way, a place, to be the whole you, sweet and strong and true. Brass buttons, green silks, and silver shoes. Warm evenings, pale mornings, bottle blues. And the tiny golden pins that she wore up in her. Buttons, 
Hello. Hello, Patricia Bosworth. Is that you? Yes, it is. I'm sorry if you tried the other one. And <laughs> my my landline sometimes doesn't answer, and I think that may have happened. I don't know. Oh, that's fine. You sound clear. It's it's a beautiful sunny day in in January. It's it's a pleasure to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Well, I'm very glad to be on. And uh, before we get started, let me give uh, the listeners a little background information. All right. Patricia Bosworth is an American journalist and a biographer living in New York City. She was born in San Francisco and is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College. Ms. Bosworth is a contributing editor of Vanity Fair magazine. A winner of the Front Page Award, she has taught literary nonfiction at Columbia University's School of Journalism and Barnard College. A longtime board member of the Actors Studio, she ran the Playwrights Directors Unit there. Ms. Bosworth's biography, Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, was on the New York Times bestseller list. Her other books include best-selling biographies of Montgomery Clift, Marlon Brando, and the photographer Diane Arbus, the latter of which was made into the movie Fur, starring Nicole Kidman and Robert Downey Jr. Ms. Bosworth's first memoir about her family in the Hollywood blacklist is entitled... Anything Your Little Heart Desires, An American Family Story. Her second memoir, entitled The Men in My Life, a memoir of love and art in 1950s Manhattan, was published by HarperCollins in January 2017. Troubadours and Rock On Tours is very happy to have on the program Patricia Bosworth. So, Thank you. Oh, thank you. So uh, right now, I guess you're sitting at your, in your place in New York City, and uh, I, am. I, uh, I appreciate the time you've taken out, and I, I want to get right into it and ask you to share, if you would, a little bit about your background, your journey, as it were. Mm-hmm. Well, well I, I, as, I, as, as you said, I was, I was born in San Francisco. Uh, my father was Bartley Crumb, who was one of the lawyers, became, was, he's most well-known for being one of the lawyers for the Hollywood 10, you know, during the blacklist. And my mother was a journalist, a crime reporter on a Cole Bolton newspaper. And um, uh, I grew up in San Francisco, well, I lived there till I was 15, and then we moved to New York because my father bought a, an, an ill-fated newspaper called PM. Um, this was after he'd... Uh, he'd been a lawyer for Hollywood 10 and, and he'd had a lot of trouble with the FBI because, you know, it was, uh, uh, wasn't against the law to be a communist, but it was every, the, the atmosphere, the anti-communist hysteria was so great that uh, my father was aligned and surveyed by J. Edgar Hoover and lost most of his law practice after that. So that's why we moved to New York and he bought this newspaper and it, folded within a year because it was a very radical left-wing newspaper, but we stayed in New York. Um, and uh, I've, I've been here ever since, really. I was first an actress and then I became a writer. Given you know your experience uh, being raised in the household of your parents, being pretty liberal people, like you're not sitting there wearing a MAGA hat, right? Have you, uh, uh, have you stayed within the same context as your parents in terms of your political views, your so- social views? today or have you gone to a diff- in a, into a different direction oh no i'm i'm, I'm i certainly have a, a liberal frame of mind and i think the the way i 
I choose my subjects and, and what I write about, particularly right now, what, what I'm writing about, which is I'm writing about Paul Robeson, the great black activist of the 40s, uh, versus J. Edgar Hoover, which we can talk about now or later, um, is really the culmination of, of everything that I've kind of experienced and believe in and, and want to write about and want to talk about now uh, at this point in my life. No, I think it's a perfect place to go. I mean, given the fact that today, the day we're, we're having this conversation, is uh, the day in which we celebrate uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., uh, it, it makes sense to talk about Paul Robeson as compared to, as opposed to uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. So if you want to go there, I'm, I'm ready. Sure, sure. I'd love to talk about it. This is what I'm working on now. It's the, it's my eighth book, and I, I think it's the m- most challenging book of my life. And I can, I can tell you exactly what happened, how I came to decide to do it. I was, uh, I was at a, a, a meeting with Brian Stevenson, who, uh, who really created the, the lynching museum uh, uh, down in, in, uh, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama three years ago, and he was talking about the importance of paying tribute to the 4,000 uh, Afro-Americans who lost their lives, innocent ones, all of them, all of them um, for crimes mostly that they, not, they never committed. Anyway, uh, I was listening to him talk, and I suddenly remembered that when I was very young, um, my father and Paul Robeson worked together on an anti-lynching Campaign. It was they were trying to get an anti-lynching law passed in Congress. This is back in the forties, and I remembered it so vividly. I remembered Robeson coming to our house and talking, and uh, and of course he was a phenomenal character, a stupendous kind of heroic, one of a kind of characters. And he, uh, you know, the probably the most uh, outspoken advocate for racial equality in his time, and he was also at that point the most famous Afro-American in the world, along with Joe Lewis. I mean, he's co- he was comparable to Oprah in those days. He was that important and that effective and that influential. Anyway, I um, I decided I was going to write about, about, about him and about my father and he fighting to end lynching, and also the fact that they both had bonded because they both were being, at that very moment, they were being surveyed by J. Edgar Hoover. It was, um, they were both radical uh, and had been doing an awful lot of stuff Hoover didn't approve of, and, and he, was, he was out to get every, what he thought, every communist. My father didn't happen to be a communist. Paul Robeson probably, certainly believed in the Communist Party, although he was not a member of the party. Anyway, all these things kind of converged, and I began to research this book and that was, I guess I was researching for the last two and a half years. I now have a contract with Farrar Strauss to do it. And I'm just taking the five pivotal years of Robeson's life when he was triumphing in Othello on Broadway as an actor opposite Uta Hagen and Jose Ferrer. And at the same time, he was working to stop lynching to get a bill passed in Congress, which, by the way, was never passed and has never been passed <laughs> to this day. There have been 200 bills that have never passed because of the, you know, the the, the white supremacists in, in Congress, and there are a lot of them. Anyway, that began my, th- this is what I'm doing right now, and I'm totally and completely obsessed with, with the book, and with also with writing about Hoover, which, of course, Hoover is uh, Robeson's exact opposite. You know, it's like good guy, ba- bad guy in a way. Um, you know, uh, 
Robeson is black and and straight and uh, uh, radical, and Hoover is gay and uh, arch conservative and uh, a real villain. And they both looked at justice in different ways. I mean, the whole thing is utterly fascinating, and it will be the most challenging book of my life. It sounds utterly fascinating, and it is. I, it is. <laughs> now, your your dad's first name. My dad. My dad's first name was Bartley or Bart Bartley Crum. And he was one of the lawyers for the Hollywood Ten. Uh, he he, def- he defended Ring Lardner and Waldo Salt and 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 uh, Dalton Trumbo and um, Bert Albrecht in front of the first House on American Activities Committee. They were investigating whether or not these guys, all of them writers and or directors, had were communists, and they were accusing them of wanting to overthrow the government. I'm laughing, but it wasn't funny. No, no, it's 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 absurd. You got to laugh sometimes when things are absurd. I, I think. Um, now, when when you look at the, I guess, progress or lack thereof, maybe I want. That's what I want to ask you about. Since you've been witnessing uh, the fight that your father and your mother and and Mr. Robeson have been taking on, among other people, do, uh, w- with regard to uh, racial injustice inequality. Uh, and the like. Do you think uh, there's been much progress made in our in our society? Well, no, I think I think it's still terrible. I think we have a denial of how much racism there still is in this country. I think the difference is it is talked about much more openly. For example, when my father was, he worked for Roosevelt for a while at, on the Fair Employment Practices Program that was taking place in Washington during the, during the Second World War, where they were trying to end segregation um, in in the on the Southern Pacific Railroad, and they did. My father helped do that at that point during the war. That there was a tremendous fight to end end uh, uh, segregation, but then right after the war, it went back to the same way. And and I think now I think it's it's very bad right now. There's a tremendous racial bias and oh, all sorts of insidious things are going on. Look at what's so happening. Was it somewhere in the South this morning? There's this gigantic rally that is going on for gun control and against gun control. And uh, there are thousands of people in the streets with guns and an awful lot of black people with guns and a lot a lot of hatred. Um, I think you witness racism and violence every day. Or you hear about it, you know. I don't. I don't think much has changed. I really don't. No, no. And, and uh, you know, you you make a couple of pop uh, uh, culture uh, references pop in my head. Like uh, you, you mentioned uh, gun violence, and you mentioned gun control, uh, and the uh, our, our our fellow black citizens. You know, there's an advocate uh, called Killer Mike. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Uh, he's he's uh, a rapper, but he's also a big social activist, and he he says that black people should keep their guns because they need to protect themselves against white people, basically, and and the and 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 the establishment. Uh, you know, for me as a white guy, I I thought you know. Uh, you know how sometimes you oversimplify uh, political stances, and you you know I align myself with the liberal causes as well. And I would, fi- you know, I'm I'm for gun control, and I would figure many of my fellow citizens in the black community would be as well. But then I heard that take on it, and it made me realize I don't understand the view of many of my fellow black citizens in terms of needing to protect themselves from the establishment. And I know 
Well, there's no way that we as white people can ever understand what it's like to really be discriminated against, and uh, it's it's pretty horrible. It really is. That's certainly one of the things I want to, to write about to show what happened with Robeson and how how, how much he suffered and how much he uh, also triumphed. But that, that that was his main goal was to, was to end segregation. Was to he wanted more than anything in the world to have everybody treated equal, cre- treated equally in the same way. You know. Anyway. And and was he was he uh, then blacklisted because of his his work? Not only black, he was totally destroyed. Uh, what happened was he um, he was very very vociferous in terms of of his defense of communism. He he believed that communism was 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 a good philosophy. He had gone to Russia in the 30s and been treated like, as he put it, like a human being for the first time. There was no discrimination. He even sent his his, his son to be educated in Moscow because then he felt he wouldn't have to experience the kind of prejudice he'd experienced growing up in the United States. But, but um, he, during the height of the anti-communist hysteria, he became more and more outspoken um, about... Um, about his support of communism, uh, and and Hoover really was out to get him, and decided that the only way he could destroy him was through his you know his contacts with well, for, I guess uh, mainstream not mainstream but gossip columnists all over the country at that point. You know, newspapers were the were, were the all important uh, in media, and he concocted a hate media campaign against Robeson. Uh, where columnists wrote lies, awful things about him throughout the country, and at the same time, Hoover was powerful enough because the, of the anti-communist hysteria to go to music publishers and say, "Look, you can't, um, you can't, you can't hire this guy anymore. You can't play his records. You can't have him record songs. You can't uh, put him on the concert stage." And he literally uh, destroyed his career. So that his income went from two hundred thousand a year to two thousand a year. Wow! And then his passport was taken away, and he couldn't travel for ten years. He was he was utterly destroyed. Wow! Now <clears throat> we talk about um, public sentiment and and uh, you know an, an active effort to destroy certain. Uh, People that are, are are in the spotlight that that have some sway over uh, maybe uh, what what the public w- will will hear and think, and that leads me to a, another person that you've uh, focused on with your work, uh, Jane Fonda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some well, Jane has led about four lives, and she's a great activist, a great political activist. Look what she's doing now about climate change. I mean, uh, I, I just saw her last week in New York. She looks fabulous and she was about to you know go back to washington to continue protesting uh the whole business of uh, the fact that trump does not want to you know have climate change um but jane is 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 a very interesting uh and really quite remarkable woman who has lived four lives you know she began as a movie star's daughter. She was Henry Fonda's daughter, and then she, she became a movie star herself and a, a sex symbol. And then she became an activist when she married Tom Hayden, and that was her, the beginning of her awareness politically. 
and now she's now she's back to doing it, having she's just an amazing woman. But but I'm I'm sort of getting I'm wandering around here about how to talk talk about her. Uh, for me, the most interesting part of her life was when she was against the war in Vietnam, and you know, she was very very courageous, and she really did. She actually did something, you know, that that stopped the the bombing of the dikes in Vietnam. Did you do you know about that? Yes, I do. Yeah, she went. Well, she went to Vietnam <clears throat> purposely to stop the bombing of the of the dikes. If they had, if they had been bombed, they would have flooded the entire country, and millions would have been drowned, and cities would have been lost, and and the whole country would have been destroyed. She went there to film this, to film the possibility of of, of the bombing, and she actually she actually accomplished what she set out to do. Although she her career was almost destroyed because she gave gave this particular subject so much importance and so much publicity that Nixon and Kissinger did stop the bombing. And they said later, they didn't say it, but other people feel that Jane was one of the people that helped help them um, change their minds. Wow. Yeah, you don't hear that every day. You know, most of the time you hear what Jane was just, at best you hear that she was a naive, uh, sort of soft-hearted liberal that didn't understand what she was getting into. Um, well, she didn't totally understand it, and she admits that later when she sat on that tank, you know, and and, and seemed to be uh, um, really acting for the North Vietnamese uh, or 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 supporting them uh, in what they were doing. But it was a, a genuine mistake that, and she talked about it a lot. Movie stars make it was a celebrity. It was a photo op. And they asked her to pose, and you know she she can pose at a drop of a hat. Always looks great. And she decided, why not? I'll, I'll sit on this tank and I'll I'll sing a, a funny song, and not a funny song, but a political song, and it, it'll all be great. And she she literally was totally unaware. As soon as she saw the picture, she realized what was going to happen. You know, because she was called Hanoi Jane, as you know. And she's still hated to this day by some factions. She's still spat upon by XGIs and. But she's she's paid her dues, and she's uh, really I, th- I think she's an amazing um, an amazing American. I agree. I agree. We're talking we're talking with Patricia Bosworth, American journalist and biographer extraordinaire, I might add. And uh, we are referencing a, a biography that was on the New York Times bestseller list about uh, Jane Fonda, titled "Jane Fonda: The Private Life of a Public Woman." And um, you've written by, about so many really interesting, compelling individuals. And I, it seems to me that most of them uh, have a, a, a provocative uh, aspect of their, uh, you know, their life, like Marlon Brando, Diane Arbus. All of these folks had certain uh, Montgomery Clift to a certain extent too as much as i know of him they all had certain struggles did you you know that they had they had to contend with uh, whether it be personally and or public publicly did you do you find that is the case with a lot of your subjects that uh, you know once you get to know who they are that there are indeed these struggles well i always choose i always have chosen one of a kind characters originals eccentrics People who challenge the norm, uh, and, and and also I have been very lucky, incredibly lucky. I have known every single one of my subjects, which is sort of sort of unusual. Uh, I feel very lucky because it automatically gave me access. But because my father was such a famous lawyer, 
he knew all these people. Um, he didn't know Brando, but he, he he was Montgomery Cliff's lawyer. I I had you know studied acting with Jane Fonda at the Actors Studio, um, and and uh, with Deanne Arbus, the photographer. I modeled for her when I was seventeen years old, and so this gave me um, special special access, and I. I realized that, and I feel very lucky because it, it just enabled me to explore their lives, inhabit their lives. Uh, they talked, all talked to me very openly. Excuse me, not Montgomery Cliff, because he was already dead by the time I, I did the biography, but I knew him when I was a kid. But all this was just amazing and wonderful, and, and I, I, I'm very lucky. Oh my gosh, yeah, to have the the uh, the opportunity to talk with these folks. But yeah, I mean, you're in your own right a pretty impressive individual. Uh, well, <laughs> now, uh, when when you when you have um, dealt with your own self, uh, in particular, in a, in, a, in a book, you wrote uh, one dealing with the men in your life, love and art in the 1950s, right? Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Well, that you know that the title is a very sexy title, but it really is not a sexy story. In that, the main, the most important men in my life were my my brother and my father, and they both committed suicide when I was very young. And this book is the story of how I survived their deaths and moved on, because of course uh, it was the most traumatic kind of experience possible to lose the people I love most in the world, you know, one after the other. And I decided that I would finally write about this particular part of my life now. Uh, and I did. And it was very cathartic because, of course, surviving uh, was uh, is a, an amazing kind of experience. And as I survived, I, you know, became an actress and I became a member of the actor studio and unless I got married and divorced and I had all these amazing experiences which uh, which made me grow and, and change and, and learn and um, this is what the book is about it's actually mostly a tribute to my brother my beloved brother who killed himself unnecessarily it's a terrible story and it has to do with him being accused of being a homosexual when he was in, in boarding school his best friend, who he had had a very loving relationship with, uh, committed suicide, and the school, in essence, blamed my brother. And he was kicked out of the school, and, of course, this experience absolutely traumatized him and filled him with such guilt that he killed himself two years later. And I decided that I would write about it, uh, write about it in full, and I went back to Deerfield, the school that he went to, and they denied that he'd ever been there or there'd ever been a suicide on campus, and I had to prove it by showing them pictures of him in the yearbook. This is like 40 years later. Um, but I I really wanted to tell the entire story because it's a homophobic, you know, horror story, um, because people in those days really hated and feared homosexuals, and I wanted to write about that. It's very different now. Sometimes now when I talk about it, when I lecture or I, you know, give a speech somewhere, uh, some guy will jump up from his seat and say, look, it almost happened to me. You know, I was I was traumatized by this kind of experience because I'm gay. And I've had this happen a number of times. People in the audience come over and say, thank you for telling the story that we want to tell our stories, too. It's a very different time right now. You know, but basically, that's why I wanted to write that book. 
even though there's a lot of other stuff in it about my life in the theater and, you know, acting on Broadway and all that stuff, but but I was always haunted, haunted by my, my brother's death, and finally I was able to, to write about it. Was he an older brother or a younger brother? Oh, he's younger. But he was my, I mean, he was brilliant and amazing, and I, and he, he was, he was my guide. He was the one who told me what to do, and I was very scatterbrained and, and, uh, bad student. He was a brilliant student. Uh, he, he was the one I looked up to, and, and when, when, when he died, I, I was just totally lost. Oh, I'm so sorry for for you about that. About that, I, it, it, hearing it is making me feel a bit emotional. Oh no, 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 no! I, it's it's, a, it's because I, I know people like that myself. You know, uh, I know people that have had a similar struggle, and it's just it's so deeply um, sad and 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 wrong for pe- for any individual to have to deal with that. Well, you know, the thing is, I, I, I feel very lucky. I am a survivor. I mean, I, I'm, I'm strong. I really am. I wanted to survive. I, did, I didn't want to kill myself. I don't have suicidal impulses. I feel very lucky I don't. But I did not. I, I, it, this, this is a story of, of me surviving, you know, and, and I think there are a lot of stories like this. Yeah, and it seems like you've done something with it. I mean, what, why, I, hearing your, your, your journey, your story... You've witnessed a lot of strong people take on important fights in our in our you know society, um, and and ha- and having dealt having to deal with the the pushback because of of mm-hmm. choosing those difficult mm-hmm. fights. And you've you, what you've chosen to do is is uh, sort of share their stories and and analyze you know it seems to me you know what why and and what for. Well, I, I, I try to, you know, I think, I, I, I like to think I, uh, I, I can, I succeed. I know, I think I, I think by this time I know how to tell a good story. That really is, if I have any talent at all, I, I really know how to tell a story. Um, I mean, that's what fascinates me, people's stories. I remember Aliyah Kazan telling me, uh, he was at the actor studio, the director, you know, on the waterfront and, oh, other wonderful plays and movies that, that, um, uh, the importance is is the story. Um, you have to find the story. What happened? Why? Ask those questions. Why? Where? Where were you? Who are you? All all questions. 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 That's the other thing. Always ask ask yourself questions. What am I doing? <laughs> like what am I doing right now? Which is trying to explain who I am. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that's. Troubadours and rock on tours, you know. Uh, that's that's the whole. I love I love those ty- those those descriptions. Troubadours, rock on oh. tours, it's the best, isn't it? It is storytelling. It, it is. It is. And uh, I, I I truly appreciate all that you've shared with us uh, with this conversation. I uh, again, we're talking to Patricia Bosworth, uh, American journalist and biographer, actress. Is- Hello. Hey, what happened? Oh God! I, I got so excited. I pressed. I think I pressed my ear too close to the receiver. Or some damn thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's Sorry about that. no, no, no. It's all right. I figured uh, something like that occurred. We're, we're just about, you know, there. We're probably finished. I hope. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just about there. I, I you know, I basically, okay. I, I, I just wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to. Um, um, Share if you like and a, a place where people can and follow what you're doing, uh, and and 
then maybe a, a, a few final thoughts about, uh, uh, you know, or, or suggestions to people listening as to, you know, how they could uh, understand better um, their own lives and, and uh, our, our, our society at present? No, that's a big order. I don't know whether I can do that. Well, I certainly think if, you know, it's always a good idea to, if, if you're interested in yourself, which most people are, concerned or obsessed with themselves and their problems, is to write down, write write what you think on a piece of paper. That always helps because it always comes out slightly differently. Um, but, you know, just I, I think you should, people should... Uh, be very aware of what's going on in the world. There's so much going on in the world that is also wonderful, you know. Uh, all the inventions and the art and the books that are being written and the paintings that are being painted, the music that's being composed. I mean, there's, there, life life is, is wonderful. I mean, I, I love this phrase, my wild and precious life, which is a Mary Oliver quote, the poet Mary Oliver um, I, I, I do I do try to take a positive um, outlook in in life, even though there's an awful lot of darkness in, in life. But I I choose I choose to look at the light rather than the dark, even though I write a lot about the dark. <laughs> if that makes any sense. It surely does. So, but um, I don't know. I just uh, for me, my life is is amazing and wonderful, and I'm I feel very lucky and very privileged that I'm not sick, and that I still have my brain, my brain power, uh, uh, at this point. Um, so there you go. A pleasure talking to you. You seem to me to be a wonderful person, and I you know I I really appreciate you being on the program, Patricia. Well, I I do too, and thank you. I'm sorry there was so much complications with our with our phones. That was terrible. But I really enjoyed it. I thank, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> I will. Bye. You know well what I've been through Living there without a view Asking why we missed our chance Looking for 
Station, performed by Marnie Azzarelli, recorded at the Old Brick Theater in Scranton, Pennsylvania, courtesy of Diva Productions. Welcome to the company. I'm Amber, your HR representative, and I'm here to introduce you to the culture of our workplace. As new employees, you must be a little nervous, a little confused, a little scared. Well, as your HR rep, I'm going to put you at ease, give you some important information, and guide you through your first days on the job. As you learned when you were first hired, your orientation period lasts 90 days. After those 90 days, we'll determine whether or not we're a good fit as employer and employee. Yes, Kurt, you have a question. Uh-huh. 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 Did everyone hear Kurt? He asked if he would be canned at the end of the orientation period. <laughs> what an awful word, canned. But yes, if you're not a good fit, you'll probably be happier elsewhere, and you would be terminated. But let's not dwell on the negative. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. You'll adjust to our corporate culture, and you'll have a long, fruitful experience here. Now, if you take a look at your orientation packet, you'll see a whole bunch of materials, including the employee handbook. This handbook is your Bible. It provides information on your health benefits, vacation, sick days, although you better not call in sick during your orientation period, <laughs> parking, our code of ethics, and our dress code. Speaking of dress codes, I see a few violations in this group. We're business casual, unless we have important visitors, like the head honchos from our main corporate office. In that case, proper business attire all around. Most other days, we can wear what makes us comfortable, as long as, of course, we're presentable and professional. Ladies, I see some major cleavage out there. Let's cover those puppies up until we hit the bars, okay? Gentlemen, please, no backwards-facing baseball caps. Uh, yes, Kurt, you have a question? Uh-huh. 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 Kurt wants to know if he can wear sweatpants, and the answer, of course, is no. This is a workplace, not Planet Fitness. Thanks much for your question, Kurt. So, read your employee handbook carefully, and if you have any questions, email me or stop by my office. My door is always open. Oh, oh, before I let you all get back to work, that's why we're all here, right? I want to bring up a subject that isn't in your handbook, although it's crucial to your success at the company. As you know, Mr. Franklin Frick III is the president of our division. As you also well know, he is quite an impressive figure. He has led the company to high growth and increasing profitability. He is the intellectual equal of any of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. He is a world-class runner who has participated in numerous marathons and the Ironman tournament. He has a beautiful blonde wife and three charming blonde children. He is warm and witty and wise. Behind his fashionable glasses, his blue eyes sparkle. So, how to approach this man among men, this sleek, sinewy paragon dressed in black Gore-Tex, this corporate god? You don't. Do you hear me? You don't. In the unlikely event that you are lucky enough to be in his presence in his office, for example, you must behave in the following manner. Do not look directly at Mr. Frick. Do not ask him questions or offer an opinion. If you are asked a question, speak clearly and in low tones and look down. Do not look into his azure eyes, however much you yearn to. Those dreamy blue eyes will call to you, but you must resist their power. At the end of the meeting, when you are no longer needed, back out slowly, as you would leaving the presence of a king. Do not turn your back on Mr. Frick. 
Ladies, if you are fortunate enough to encounter him in the hallway, as he draw ne draws near, flutter your eyelids and smile sweetly. Say by the grace of the gods above, he stops and offers a pleasantry or a little joke. Your heart will race and you will laugh. The joke will be funny. Gaze at his black-clad body as he bounds down the hallway, off to close some important deal that only he can close. Go into the ladies' room to compose yourself, splash water in your face, hold back your tears, and tell no one of your brief encounter. Gentlemen, if you see him in the hallway, get out of the way. Yes, Kurt, you have a question. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Okay. You're in maintenance, Kurt. He will never talk to you. He will never see you. He will know nothing of your existence. And Kurt, could I see you after the meeting? Well, that about wraps. <gasps> Here he comes.
repose. Those lips so full, so pink as we come closer to touch and kiss and nibble. What of the dysfunctional drivel, ambient and distracting? Can we do it once more? Adore the taste and deep repose. You smell like spring purple lilacs in June. Back blazers and ate all your razors while pulling the waders. Talking about Monroe and walking on Snow White. New York's a go go and everything tastes nice. Poor little greenie.
And there you have it, episode 354 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Patricia Bosworth, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, actress and playwright, Marnie Azzarelli, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Amy Mann, Graham Parsons, Caravan Palace, Grizzly Bear, David Bowie, Branford Marsalis, and of course, Terence Blanchard, too. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this time. Thanks so much for listening.